The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Luke Marsden, who is the founder and CEO with Dot Science. Hi, Luke. Thank you so much for joining us today on AI Today. Hey, folks. Uh, thank you for having me on. Welcome, Luke, and thanks for joining us. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and the exciting things that are going on at Dot Science. Yeah, sure. So, hi, everyone. My name's Luke. I've been working on MLOps for a couple of years now. My background prior to that was I was heavily involved in the Docker ecosystem. So that was the world of containers and worked closely in my previous startup, Cluster HQ, with making it possible to put databases in containers and snapshot them and things like that. And it turns out that that technology is very applicable to the world of, of data science and machine learning. And I'll explain, explain how a bit later on. And yeah, I've also worked in the Kubernetes ecosystem. So Kubernetes, of course, is the the project that came primarily out of Google, kind of an open source approach to some of the very large scale computing that's done at Google and making it easier to run very large workloads reliably across lots of servers and that kind of thing. And yeah, so lots of sort of open source background and very much on the DevOps and infrastructure side of things. And that's kind of why we've come to the world of machine learning with very much a DevOps perspective. And we're looking at ways that you can bring some of the best practices that are pretty normal and common for software developers and DevOps engineers and bring some of those best practices to the world of data science and machine learning, where frankly, it's it's pretty lacking in many cases at the moment. So I can dive into more of that as you wish. But in terms of the exciting things going on at Dot Science, well, we have a product that launched in the summer of last year an end-to-end data science and machine learning platform called Dot Science. It started out from, as I mentioned, the world of DevOps and data versioning. And so when the company started just over two years ago now, we started with this project called Dot Mesh. And the idea with Dot Mesh was to bring data versioning to the world of DevOps. And about six months into that project, we realized, okay, we could build a business around data versioning for DevOps. But actually, we've discovered that there's a much, much bigger problem around data versioning in the world of data science and machine learning. And none of us had kind of been in that world before. So we had a very rapid sort of learning curve for us and our team to to really get into the world of data science and machine learning. But, But what we heard over and over again was that there's a reproducibility crisis in data science, that there's challenges with data versioning and being able to even know which version of a data set was used to train a model that might be running in production, that might be making important decisions. And from that, we started the Dot Science Project. And the Dot Science Project really started out being focused around data versioning and provenance. So the ability to go from a model that's running in production and trace back to exactly the version of the data set that was used to train it and exactly where that data set came from. And we learned kind of in 2019, really, that starting with that problem was actually starting with a problem that was further down the road for 
most of the market. And we did find some sort of early visionary customers who agreed with us about the importance of data versioning and provenance. And they were kind of at a point with their own AI projects where they were ready to tackle those problems. But we found that probably 98% of the market that we were speaking to had more fundamental problems. And this was kind of interesting because it was like, okay, well, we solved a problem that a lot of the market doesn't have yet. And so we extended the product to support the end-to-end machine learning lifecycle. And what we found was, what we heard over and over again, was that most companies actually have a more fundamental problem. They have the problem of being able to deploy models into production at all. And that surprised us. But we, that's why we developed the product to deploy models very easily. So we made it possible with our Python library for a data scientist to run a single command, which is called ds.model. And that will automatically build a Docker image for a certain like TensorFlow or scikit-learn model, and then automatically allow the user, just by clicking a button, to deploy that model to a Kubernetes cluster, and then also set up monitoring for that model. And I guess we'll talk about monitoring a bit later on. But yeah, that's kind of the, the exciting things that are, that are going on, is that we've navigated to the point where we have this end-to-end platform that we're seeing real customer traction with. And as a startup founder, that's exciting because we've achieved product market fit and we're solving real problems for real users, which is nice. I hope that answers your, yeah. your first question. <laughs> it's a nice, robust answer because it covers a lot of ground, which is great. You know, For a lot of our listeners who, who may not really be familiar with MLOps, I know that we are at Cognolytica. We actually just wrapped up some research on the subject. And, and it's really interesting, the timing of bringing this sort of solution to market where we're now starting to see a maturing in the understanding of how to use and consume, but more, more, we're also just not moving from companies who are building their own models and experimenting to organizations who are starting to leverage or models built by other parts of their organization or even by other organizations. This changes a lot of the emphasis of the need for management. But for many of our listeners who may not know, have never heard maybe the term MLOps, maybe they're kind of familiar with DevOps and maybe even know it. Maybe for our listeners, you can define, at least from your perspective, what is this MLOps thing? What is the ops part? And, and how does that connect to maybe some of the concepts of DevOps that they may already be familiar with? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. What is MLOps? And for a large part of the company's life, we were doing something that didn't have a name yet. And the word MLOps only really came into even somewhat popular parlance last year. And so it is, it's a very new term. And so I certainly wouldn't expect everyone listening to have heard of it before. So MLOps is the intersection of three disciplines. It's the intersection of software engineering, machine learning, and DevOps. And I mean, just to sort of provide a a snapshot of of where those disciplines individually have have come to, software engineering has undergone a a bit of a revolution in the last decade or so, maybe two decades now. (laughs) And software engineering has gone from something which was done slowly and very manually by software engineers emailing patches, patch files around to each other as a way of collaborating to distributed version control with tools like GitHub, making it much easier to rapidly iterate on a software project together. And so that'd be my sort of summary of where software engineering has come to. The sort of the state of the art is around distributed version control and, and, and asynchronous collaboration. And then DevOps has also been sort of a revolution in the last 10 years or so, going from a place where 
when a company that's a software company is delivering software, sort of before DevOps, there would be silos. There would be teams of software engineers who were working on the software. And then there would be teams of operators, IT professionals who would be running the software. And there was very much a sense that you sort of, the software engineers build the software and they type, 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 they write some software, and then they, they throw it over the wall to the IT ops people. And the problem with that is it really slowed down the delivery of software. And it meant that there were big organizational challenges around sort of big, slow release cycles. And it would take months for software to ship. And what DevOps has done is it said, no, you shouldn't have separate teams. You shouldn't have a separate software team from your ops team. You should have a DevOps team, which means that you combine your developers with your operations people. And sometimes that's a sort of multifunctional team, a team that contains people with both disciplines. Sometimes it's that one person is doing both the software engineering and the the operations and actually deploying it. And increasingly, that's the way that sort of modern software is built. And so DevOps was really this sort of revolution in terms of being able to ship software more quickly and combining that organizational change of putting software developers and operations people in the same team and often in the same role. Software has gone from taking months to ship to minutes, and in some cases, seconds. And so that's also been enabled by tools like continuous integration and continuous delivery. So now you can push a commit to master or merge a, a branch into master. And within a few seconds the, or minutes, the, the test suite can be run automatically against that commit. And if the test suite passes, then that software will, in some cases, automatically be deployed into production. And so for a modern software company now, when you get a new starter, you say on their first day, well, let's make a change to the production software. And that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago with these long release cycles. So that's kind of the DevOps piece. And then machine learning, as you well know, has had something of a resurgence in recent years. It's suddenly become very popular, very sort of hypey. And the background of that is that we went, we've kind of been through an an AI winter already. (laughs) I won't go like way back into the 70s and and go through all the history, but, but we've been through one AI winter already where it turned out that the computers weren't fast enough to really do AI properly. And that's changed now with GPUs and other accelerators and with some of the more modern sort of frameworks like TensorFlow and PyTorch and, and of course, good old scikit-learn. And so in this ML world, what we're seeing is really machine learning is coming out of research and suddenly there's an arms race for enterprises all over the planet to try and operationalize AI or machine learning to improve all sorts of aspects of their business all the way from chatbots for interacting with your customers to making more accurate models to do credit scoring or detect fraud and cybersecurity and all sorts of applications. And and what we're seeing is that as machine learning comes out of research, really, and starts to get used increasingly in these enterprise use cases, that there's a new silo exists or new silos exist between the DevOps teams and the machine learning teams. And so another kind of merging of disciplines needs to happen between the ML teams, which often contain people with an analytics or a mathematics background. They might be great statisticians who use Python or R kind of as a tool, but they're not software engineers often, and they're not DevOps engineers. And so they don't have the sort of operational and the software engineering background to do an awesome job of 
actually delivering and operating production quality software. And it's complicated by the fact that the tooling for regular DevOps doesn't work very well for ML and MLOps. And so anyway, that's a very long way of defining MLOps. But to summarize, it's the intersection of those three disciplines, trying to have a team of people using tooling which supports a DevOps-like workflow for machine learning and getting machine learning models built in a reproducible way, trained, and then deployed into production. And then once they're running in production, monitoring them in a sensible way. So yeah, I hope that that's a useful definition. Yeah, thank you for that definition, especially for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with, you know, this terminology and this idea as well. So I know that you talked about a few of the challenges, but can you share with us some challenges that you've seen companies face as they begin to use models, machine learning models in production? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest problem that, like I said, was was a bit of a surprise when we discovered it, was that a lot of companies just struggle to get machine learning models into production at all. And so there's the question of, well, how do I... So I've got... Maybe I've got a data scientist or a data science team that are building models on their laptops. So they pull down some data onto their laptop and they use Jupyter locally and they build a model using scikit-learn or TensorFlow. And it seems to work. And then it's like, okay... Great, I've got a model. Let's put it in production and start it doing something useful. And so that we can get some feedback on how well it works when it's running on live data rather than on the test and training set that I that I have locally. And the challenge there is often you kind of hit a brick wall at that point. Like going from model on laptop to model running in production is a much bigger gulf for a lot of companies than than we expected. And that's Often because if you say to a DevOps engineer who doesn't have any background in machine learning, hey, I've got this TensorFlow model. I would like you to deploy it, please. They say, what is a TensorFlow model? Oh, well, it's this like collection of files I have on my laptop. And like even getting from, from that point to running the model in production requires knowledge of being able to set up, for example, a TensorFlow serving Docker image and deploying it to a Kubernetes cluster. As I would recommend, that's kind of the best practice way to do it. But even that step can be quite challenging for, for IT teams that are not familiar with machine learning at all. And so that's where the deploy capability in our platform comes in. Like I said before, being able to run a single command from a Jupyter notebook and immediately deploy a model into production, kind of abstracting away the complexity of dockerizing it and deploying it to Kubernetes. That's kind of the first challenge. The second challenge we see once people have models running in production is they don't know how to understand the behavior of the model in production. And the reason for that is that monitoring models is very different to monitoring regular software microservices. So in particular, when you're monitoring a microservice or any service, really, any piece of software that's running in production, if you ask a regular sort of DevOps team, how do you monitor your microservices, then they'll say something like, well, we have Prometheus set up to scrape the statistics from the microservice, and we monitor the request latency and error rate. and Okay, so you monitor request rates and latency and error rate. That's all fine, except that a machine learning model, when it's running in production, can be giving completely normal readings for request rate and latency and error rate. But the model itself can actually have gone completely haywire and can be giving you garbage predictions. And this is a real challenge because sort of if you already knew the answer that the model was trying to predict, 
then you wouldn't need the model. And so, in other words, the production data is inherently unlabeled. And so there's this challenge around, well, how do I understand the behavior of my model that's running in production? And there are some approaches that you can take, some statistical approaches, and we've baked some of those into the dot science platform. And I'll give you just one example of that, which is suppose you have a, a road sign model that's running in an autonomous vehicle. And that autonomous vehicle, there's a fleet of these autonomous vehicles driving around cities all over America, say. And the autonomous vehicles are sending back uh, telemetry, sort of monitoring metrics uh, about the various models that are running on the vehicles. And so one of the models that would run on the vehicles would be classifying road signs. So as the car comes up to a road sign, it would have to classify the road sign. And there was famously a, an example of someone tricking an autonomous vehicle to go at 85 miles an hour rather than 35 miles an hour by putting a single piece of tape on a road sign, which is kind of scary. And so that would be a good example of a scenario where you need to be monitoring the behavior of the model, even though the production data is unlabeled. And so one way of doing that in this example would be to look at the statistical distribution of the classifications that a model is making. And another example might be that for some reason, your model that classifies road signs can't classify road signs in the snow. There was just never, that can't classify stop signs in the snow in particular. And that's entirely plausible. There might just never have been any snowy stop signs in the training data. And then so suddenly it snows in the northeast of the US. And all of a sudden, the number of stop signs that your fleet of autonomous vehicles is classifying drops to nearly zero. Well, that's why you need to be monitoring the statistical distribution of the classifications. And you need to set up alerts so that, for example, if the number of stop signs that you're expecting to see drops below a certain threshold, or the number of stop signs that, that you're actually seeing drops below a threshold of the number that you're expecting to see, then you really want to page a human because one of two things will have happened. Either the world has changed, like it snowed, um, in which case you really want to know because you need to be getting on retraining that model ASAP, or someone deployed a model that didn't work as expected when deployed in production. And in both of those cases, you need to know, and then you need to be able to trace back to where that model came from. And that brings me on to the third challenge that people have. So to summarize, the first challenge is deploy models at all, right? Understanding, dockerizing your scikit-learn model or your TensorFlow model and deploying it to production on Kubernetes. And then the second challenge is around model monitoring. And model monitoring is different to monitoring regular software. And you have to bring in these statistical techniques. And then the third challenge, I would just sort of summarize as scaling up your team and scaling up the number of models and the number of versions of data causes, I've seen this over and over again, it causes a level of chaos and pain in organizations that you just don't get with software. It's There's something specific about machine learning that makes it much harder than software to keep track of all the moving parts. And this is because in regular software engineering, your DevOps cycle is quite simple. It just looks like you write some software, you test the software, you deploy it, and then you monitor it. And so it's a very sort of straightforward loop. Whereas in machine learning, you've got lots more inputs to the process. You've got data, which is constantly changing. And you need to keep track of which version of the data you use to train a model. You've got the code, which is training the model. But you've also got parameters that go into training that model, like hyperparameters, like the learning rate of a neural network, for example. And then once you train a model, you also have metrics that come out that you need to keep track of those metrics, like what was the accuracy score or the F1 score of a given model. and then 
Once the model is built, you need to version the actual model itself, which is a, typically a binary file. And then you need to somehow connect all of those pieces together so that you can keep track of where each model came from in the model library. And then you need to be able to deploy that model into production and then monitor it in the way that I've already described that monitoring models is more complex. And my point in this sort of third challenge is that because the tooling for machine learning isn't as good as the tooling for the DevOps yet, because machine learning has all of these other extra variables and extra challenges associated with it, it means that when you try and you get all sorts of problems, like when a new data scientist comes on board, every data scientist, sort of the status quo is that every data scientist will have their own way of keeping track of things. They might use a paper notebook or they might use a, a wiki or a markdown file. And what we've seen very, very often is people using spreadsheets because given information that needs to be kept track of and lacking tooling to keep track of it, humans will often just resort to using spreadsheets. And so we've often seen these spreadsheets of models. This version of this model came from running this version of this code on this training data, and we've got this accuracy score, and Bob ran this model, and then Alice ran a different version of it, and we think we deployed that one to production, is typically what the spreadsheet will say. And so what we see here is a real gap in the tooling in terms of run tracking. Runs are, in dot science, is this notion of capturing all of those different variables I mentioned, the data versioning, the code versioning, the hyperparameters and the metrics and the versioned models, and storing those every time you train a model, capturing all of that sort of metadata about that model in one single place, and then keeping a, a central repository of those models across the whole organization with a complete provenance trail back to where they came from. And anyway, so that's kind of the, the third major category of problems is keeping track of things, given that machine learning is inherently more complex than software. Yeah, that's a very, uh, again, very robust answer because uh, we were going we to spend some time talking about some of the challenges of machine learning, managing and monitoring machine learning models. And you really got into it. There are some new ideas. People may not be thinking about some of the challenges of model management. You know, some people talk about the idea of model drift. And you talked about this, which is that a model that you trained in one circumstance works well. I love the example of the stop signs in the winter. And you could see over time that this model is not performing well, and you can try to do a little bit of diagnosis into that, which is great. So we have this idea of model drift and data drift. You talked about that too, the data itself changing over mm -hmm. time, and these are challenges for it. And I love, it's interesting you mentioned the spreadsheets because humans love to manage things in spreadsheets, and we are chronic here at doing the same. But let me ask a little bit more about this, just, just cracking into this DevOps, MLOps thing, because I think a lot of people would like to just apply their, ex because we've been doing DevOps, I think it's kind of interesting. You know, I thought DevOps was been going on for decades, but it turns out the process of DevOps, the practice of DevOps, it's, by, it's actually about a decade old, although mm -hmm. it does stretch longer than that. People have been doing forms of DevOps for longer. But people would just like to say, well, why can't I just do MLOps the way I do DevOps and use the same tools and technology? And you explain that a little bit. But like, what is sort of wrong with the, or, or what is the challenge with the DevOps perspective on MLOps? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it, it comes down to the fact that you're trying to use a tool that's designed to keep track of commits of code. So if you take GitHub, for example, and there are millions and millions of Jupyter notebooks on GitHub, and I'm sure there are more in all the private repositories that you can't see. And that's fine. But the whole principle, the whole sort of approach that version control 
on its own, sort of regular software version control on its own takes is, okay, well, you write some code and then you manually do a commit and then you push that commit and you make some more changes and you pull someone else's changes in and you integrate them and so on and so forth. And the problem is that the practice of data scientists using version control is that they're kind of doing two things at the same time. They're iterating on a model. So they're changing the data. Maybe they're doing new data engineering. And all of that happens outside of the scope of the version control tool. And that might just be files sitting on a disk and sitting on your laptop or sitting on a shared server or something. And then they are training models and they're tweaking parameters and they're changing the code that trains the model and they're trying different models and so on. And sometimes they'll stop and they'll do a commit to record at least the code that they've changed, although they're not recording the data that they've changed. And the problem is that they have to keep switching context from, okay, I'm iterating on my model to, okay, now's a good time to make a commit. And as software engineers, you do get a good sort of intuition for a good time to make a commit. It's often when you get the tests passing or something. But that's different in the world of machine learning because the test, the test data is, is not giving you a binary yes or no answer. It's saying, okay, well, you got slightly better performance. You got slightly worse performance when you tune the parameters like this. And anyway, the point I'm making is just that what data scientists will tend to do is they will build a model. They'll build some models. They'll do some data engineering. They'll build some more models. And then at some point, they'll do a commit that says this is a good version of the code. But the models that they create don't necessarily use the exact version of the code that they committed. They might use some slightly different version, and they might use different parameters. And they might have remembered to record those parameters in the spreadsheet, or they might have forgotten because they're humans, and humans are bad at remembering to record every single thing they do. And so even if you could solve the problem of like needing to tie your code commit exactly to the version of the model that was created, you still have this problem of the data is kind of outside of the system and the data is outside of the scope of the version control system. And so you're not actually recording all the things that you need to make your model runs reproducible. And this causes this lack of reproducibility. We'll keep coming back to this. It causes huge pain when you end up deploying a model into production, and then later you can't find out exactly what version of the data it was trained on. Suppose it's an autonomous vehicle model that is involved in a crash, and someone is injured, and then there's a lawsuit. You really want to be able to go back to exactly which version of the data set was that model trained on. And if you don't have that level of rigor, both in terms of the tooling and the processes that you have in the organization, then you're going to be in hot water. I guess that would be my summary. Okay, that was really great. And Luke, this was such a great podcast and topic discussion today because I'm not sure if many of our listeners are familiar with ML apps. And I know that Cognolytica just published a report on this subject. So hopefully people will be able to read that and get a little bit more understanding. But this podcast was a really good high-level overview for what exactly it is. So thank you so much for that. And I want to end this podcast asking, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? Yes, I actually, I personally believe that AI can be a huge force for good. I believe that it will enable, it it will significantly change the global economy. It will enable the automation of a lot of otherwise very tedious jobs and I believe that we have some societal challenges to chew on, to deal with in that context, because the way that as a society we deal with those changes could go one way or the other in terms of the impact on those people's lives. But fundamentally, I believe that 
removing tedium from the global workforce should be a good thing if it's if it's harnessed correctly and i believe that it will it will dramatically change the way that we interact with technology and it will dramatically change the way that services are provided and i think that holds a lot of opportunity and it also holds some fairly significant risks and certainly for for corporations that are getting into ai i guess all of the things we talked about today are are things to be cognizant of are you deploying your models in a way that enables reproducibility so that if something bad happens you can go back and find out what happened and make sure that you fix the problem and also are you applying ai to in an ethical way which is a whole nother whole nother podcast um but yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. And thank you very much for having me on. It did. And we have certainly had many podcasts on this subject uh, <laughs> of yeah. ethics, and, and but also the broad use of AI. And I think that's part of the why we like to talk about AI in general from all these perspectives, you know, from the use case perspective, from the conceptual perspective of ethics, but also at this more fundamental tactical level. Because at the end of the day, you know, maybe what people are doing, like, oh, I'm not really doing some of these, you know, fancy AI projects. I'm just using machine learning for predictive analytics, or, you know, I'm doing some recognition project or one of the other seven patterns that we like to talk about a lot here at Cognolytica, you know, conversational systems and predictive analytics and patterns and anomalies and hyper-personalization and autonomous systems and goal-driven patterns and recognition patterns and of course, the conversational pattern, all these things are all these like little little models, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them in organizations in the not too distant future. And they all need to be managed and monitored so that they don't go off the rails, as you talked about earlier. So really, thank you so much, Luke. You had a, a lot of great insight and value into this podcast. We enjoyed having you. So thank you very much for participating on the AI Today podcast. Thank you. And if I may just invite listeners to come and join the conversation on our Slack, if that's okay, you can join our Slack at dotscience.com. And if you just scroll down the page, there's a huge Slack button in the bottom right-hand corner. It's certainly a topic that we'd all be very happy to take into a further conversation in that context. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for that, listeners. Definitely check that out if you're interested in joining their Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.